Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Beyond Seven Figures podcast. My guest today is a certified badass. He's a Desert Storm veteran, an award-winning leader, an author, military intelligence, business, and financial management. I can tell you that anybody with a strong military background has got an extraordinary advantage. So I'm really excited to talk to today's guest. He joined the Army at the age of 17, quickly went through the ranks, became an expert in psychological operations and human behavior. He's probably already profiled me by this point. It's going to be pretty <laughs> fascinating. And then he applied his knowledge to the business world. He's worked with Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase. He's managed over 100 financial centers, led a team of 600. This bio just literally continues to go on with such amazing stories, inspiring over 200,000 leaders around the world. He's also wrote a book called My Great Aunt Edna and so forth. But look, I can't wait to just jump into it. So let's just jump into this. Mac McNeil, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for having me, sir. I'm excited to be here. I literally could have went on and on and on with your bio. It's pretty extraordinary. Thank you, sir. I do have to say, though, as soon as I found out about your strong military background, right off the bat, I was excited to, to interview you. So talk to me a little bit about your military experience and how that's helped you become the leader, the global leader that you are today. Well, actually, it's the foundation for everything that I am, to be honest with you. you. know, outside of my parents, it was definitely the strongest influence in my life that taught me, you know, who I am and what my capabilities are. I was a private in Korea, you know, a bunch of privates were goofing off. We're having fun. When a sergeant comes over, sergeant first class, and he just starts ripping into us. And I didn't understand why at the time. And then, you know, he came to me later with a coaching session, a one-on-one. -on -one, and he said, you know why I was yelling at you? because of how you guys were approaching this. It's not what you were doing. You were doing what we asked you to do, but it's the how you were doing it. We weren't doing it with a spirit of excellence and that's extremely important, but that's where it came from. It's, you know, the army was the foundation of everything that I am at this point. Got it. And so talk to me a little bit about my great aunt Edna. When I was with Bank of America, someone asked me one day, you know, have you been so successful in finance? And I hadn't really thought about it, you know, in leadership. And I said, excellent, doing things the right way, no shortcuts and accountability. And someone said, hey, that spells Edna. And I say, I don't have a great on Edna. And so the team that I was leading at the time, I had 60 financial centers in Southern California. They took that and they personified it and made it a thing. So I would go into the break rooms and there'd be pictures of my great on Edna with the acronym next to it. And it became the culture of how we led and everything we did. And, you know, it's just followed me through multiple organizations, but, you know, it's this leadership platform. It's really a culture creates and how you do everything. So it's the culture and how I lead and my team's just, you know, they have fun with the personification. Got it. So what kind of advice would you give to our listener who's looking to take their companies beyond seven figures? I'd say start with people and creating that culture with people and helping them understand that you actually do care about them. And once you do that and you show that in various ways, you know, tactical ways, they start to do the work for you. And I think sometimes, especially, you know, business owners themselves, because they have the vision, because they have the expertise, because they have the knowledge, they want to do things themselves and then, have, you know, get a team to help them achieve what they see. And I think that's the inverse of what you're doing, you're focusing on the people to help them see what you see and allow them to do the work for you. When you're leading a team, so to speak, in the military, mm -hmm. if you don't obey the orders of the senior 
officers. But when you're leading a team, it's a little bit different. You can't just, you know, force somebody to do something and know that they're going to comply and so forth. Talk to me about the differences in leading people in the military and leading people in an office situation. Yeah, great point. The consequences are definitely different, you know, life or death in the military. But I believe the leadership concepts are still the same and that you have to get people to believe. And I've seen it in the military. You know, I've seen people, you know, come into, you know, military organization and, you know, they they follow exactly what, you know, they're told to do. They do exactly what they're told to do, but they don't actually believe. And you can see it. And eventually they're weeded out because everyone else on this team can see it as well, that they don't actually believe in what they're doing. And that could have grave consequences that impact me. So I think it's the same thing when you translate that into the civilian world in that you have to get people to believe. And, and if you don't, the consequences are not as dire, but as far as life or death is concerned, but as far as the business is concerned, it could impact other people's lives as well. You know, again, very similar concept to the military. It's your life or death, but here it's your livelihood. I can't use the tools that I have in the military as I would in the civilian world. It's a little bit more, you know, diplomatic approach you know, working with other external partners, things of that nature to get the work done that needs to be done. Now, what would you say to listeners who are managing remote teams Mm -hmm. and how to get the most out of remote teams versus in-office teams? Yeah, great question. And I actually do that right now. And again, it sounds like a broken record, but it's the socialization portion of it. Every single morning, I make sure that I make contact with every single one of my employees. But I engage with them, one, to let them know that I'm a person, because many times, you know, when you're in leadership, people really don't see you as a person. You know, they kind of see you as, yeah, an avenue to get to where they want to go. But I let them see that I'm a person as well. And I share personal things with them. You know, we had employees in India and Philippines and the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Well, it still felt connected. And it's that connectivity between leadership that's extremely important in this world that we operate in right now that's totally different than it was five years ago. Yeah, I got it. It's interesting because obviously there's pros and cons to being remote and then having teams in person. One of the challenges that we often see though when teams are remote is holding people accountable to make sure that they get done what they're supposed yeah. to get done. And Oftentimes, the saying that I like to use is guesswork is a cancer of all organizations. And for a lot of leaders, they spend a lot of time guessing what their team is actually doing and how they're spending their time and so forth. And so how do you address that issue of guesswork where they're wondering, what are people doing? How are they spending their time? Do they have a side gig going on? Are they even in the office? Like what's happening? Great point. And I've had those thoughts myself. So what you're actually stating is the paradigm of how leaders led when we had people in the office and we could actually, you know, keep tabs on every single thing that they were doing, where they were, where they're taking breaks, how long they took breaks, those kind of things, how often they're out of the office, because we'd see, you know, when they weren't there sitting at their desk or in their office. And we're still trying to apply that same paradigm in a world that's changed. And so the leadership paradigm has to adapt as well. And one of that is a higher level of trust than what we had before. But the level of trust has to adapt. And I had to adapt as a leader to say that, hey, if I'm reaching out to someone at two o'clock and they're not answering the phone, is it because they're not working 
Or is it because, you know, things have changed right now and maybe they took their kids to school when previously they wouldn't have done that in the in, in the old world, you know, five years ago, but they took their kids to school or picked their kids up from school. And then they're working at eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night to make sure that the deliverable is, deliverable is due the next day and it's completed. So it's that level of trust and paradigm that has to adapt. And if not, what we're going to do is we're going to create a wider divide between leadership and employee because things have adapted and they have changed. And as leaders, we have to. It's tough. I know, I've, you know, I've been in leadership 30 plus years. It's a tough change, but it's a necessary change because from everything that's been said thus far, we're not going back to that old way anytime soon. And if we continue to try to lead in that paradigm, we're going to be ineffective. What about KPIs and, you know, tracking and managing people to a specific metric? How much does that influence you as a leader? Oh, that's huge. I mean, you have to have the key performance indicators. You have to know. But like that shouldn't change when we talk about the paradigm shift. Like the key performance indicators should still be the same. You know, how they're achieved might adapt, but those key performance indicators, you know, is my company successful or not? Is employee successful or not? Is our customer engagement successful or not? I think it's probably amplified now that I think about it, you know, with your original question, going back to leading in this environment, it's amplified even more that we should understand and pay attention to those key performance indicators to see if things are effective in the way that we're planning and managing day to day. And part of that was because we needed to be stronger with our reporting capabilities that I needed to see real-time data. How can I see this real-time data and, you know, have the cloud environment, so on and so forth. But we went through that for that very reason that it, because things have changed, uh, so is my level of awareness around these key performance indicators. Sure. You know, for those who are watching this episode, they see, you can see my shirt says That's results. You. Yeah. And one of the mottos or sayings or however you want to call it that we stand by is that the reasons and results and the only thing that matters are the results. So we're a very KPI focused organization. Very, we make decisions that are based on data. Right. Or on the contrary, I think this would work and it might be at odds with some of my other executive team. When you don't have the data, the only way to prove it is to do a test. And so what I guess I say this in context because for you, how much does data play a part as a great leader, as a great leader in your world? Man, it's huge. You know, finance, we have a lot of reporting and a lot of the reporting is historical. The next step in evolution and what we're doing is that predictive analytics model, you know, the data science capabilities, things that can tell us or predict the future much longer than our, our human mind can be accurate with. So it's huge in, in strategic planning and thinking about how you want to design your organization or maybe some changes that need to be made. But without that, it's a guessing game. And in finance, guessing is not a good thing. It is yeah, not a good no. thing at all. It, yeah, it's not a good thing. So data is absolutely critical, which is part of the reason why we just went through this architectural restructure, because we needed to be next level, up to date, whatever you want to call it, next gen with the data and how we're utilizing the data. Just having data doesn't do much, to be honest with you. It's how you utilize the data that you have to create the scenarios you need to make the decisions you need to make. So there's that next step, and that's the step that we're getting ready to take right now is the predictive analytics and the, and the data science capabilities. You know, the data that you're making 
that you're basing your decisions on is only as good as the integrity of the data. Yes. Now, from a finance world, as an example, one of the things that I learned, so I, I would train hedge funds. I trained a whole bunch of people on how to you know, increase their, their wealth and in the financial markets. As I sat some of the smartest people that I knew in a room, and I showed them the methods of our trading systems. And one of the things that we did at the time was base things on channels and trend lines and so forth. And then we broke everybody into another room and they ran through simulations. Ooh. And when we came back and I looked at how they were drawing the trend lines, I realized that every single person in the room drew their trend lines differently. And at that point, I realized that we can't have any variation or the whole system is going to break down. As Deming would say, variation is the enemy of excellence. Right. And at that point, it connected the dots. That was subjective data. That just because I drew a trend line some way and I could tell somebody this is what works, Ooh. it was subjective. It couldn't be repeated over and over again. Yeah. So I went to the algorithms, which was objective data. Data you can't argue because it's backed by real hard numbers. Ooh. We try to make sure that there's a balance of both, to be honest with you. You can't go completely with objective data. Quantitative analysis sure. is good. You know, you get a lot of truth in that, but you don't get all of the truth. Yeah, absolutely. And there's usually going to be some standard of deviance where you allow yeah. some degree of objectivity. You mentioned earlier trust. Well, experience, there's a lot of that unconscious competence that happens that is very, very, very difficult to quantify, but at the same time, experience does obviously play a role. The most popular topic of this year, which is AI and the influence that it's going to have in your organizations and you as a leader, what's your take on AI and how are you working yeah. with AI right now? Great, great question, man. I'm glad, glad you asked that question. So we've already started the conversations around the integrity of AI, you know, the positives, pros and cons, what AI can do. I personally think that AI is a good thing, but also believe that there needs to be regulation with it. I mean, anytime you mention regulation in the business world, you know, it's, it's deemed a negative word and nobody wants to hear it. I know, it. I'm about, to, I'm about yeah. to twitch right now, but I get it. I get it. Yeah. But without it, like the integrity is lost in AI and AI has lost its positive influence, in my personal opinion, like can accomplish so much for the world in various ways. You know, I think about, you know, what it could do for population that has health issues and, and things of that nature. And they're limited. It's huge, you know, bringing it to finance, you know, so many things we can do. Of course, chat GPT has been a big conversation right now. And I, I get emails daily from vendors that, you know, telling me what they can help me with, you know, within our organization. I do see a lot of positives in it, but I also have to be cautious in the integrity of what's being delivered and how that could impact our constituents. And so we focus on the low to moderate income population uh, within our organization. And, you know, we lend just women and minority owned small business primarily, not only, but primarily probably about 60% in those particular geographic areas. And so the integrity of AI has to be in my mind, extremely sound. And I have to be confident in it, knowing how it's going to impact our end user or our end uh, constituent. To sum it all up, overall, I think AI is a wonderful thing, positive. I think, you know, you can't stop evolution. You know, I always say that no one remembers the name of the last guy who made the horse and buggy, but they remember Ford because horse and buggy was going out, but he probably made the best horse and buggy in the history of the world. 
is probably the best that's ever been made because he had time and history on his side. But because he didn't adapt to evolution, no one knows his name, but we know Ford. So I think of that the same way when I think about technology and AI, you have to adapt, but you also have to be careful in how you approach it because there's positives and negatives to everything. People are going to take two different paths. And this is what I'm seeing right now. You see one path where somebody uses a program like ChatGPT and they look at the input or they look at the output of ChatGPT and they don't question it. And they go, that's the output. And this is where I'm going with it. Boom. But then you take the other path, which is the individual that thinks a little bit more strategically and they see the output and then they take a step back and they go, well, what if I do it this way? And what if I do it this way? And then they question it and push the limits so that they can begin to see the different pieces and parts and dissect it a little bit. Chat GPT is wonderful at so many things, but it doesn't replace creativity or critical thinking. Yes, I agree with you 100%. And it's the same thing again in the with the military, right? I mean, you wouldn't just see one thing come across your desk and say, okay, look at this, let's go with it. You're going to sit there and you're going to look at it and just start approaching it just with a whole bunch of different angles. Ooh. Analyze it, pull it apart question it, change the prompt ever so slightly and, and see what happens. And that's where the advantage is going to go to the people that remain in a mindset of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm really, really excited about because everybody keeps thinking, you know, AI is going to replace all these jobs and everybody's going to be out of work and so forth. But AI is nothing more than a productivity tool, yeah. and it's only as good as the user behind it, period. It's not at the point where it's going to replace people, but it is going to force people to up-level certain skills. If you can learn everything in your role within a textbook, if everything that you know is strictly within a textbook, and you don't go beyond the boundaries of a textbook, you're in trouble. But if you can go beyond the textbook and add some creativity and critical thinking, you're in good hands. Yeah, I was smiling because you were describing my old job in the Army. Yeah, I was an intelligence analyst, so that's exactly what we did. You know, that critical thinking and looking at things from varying points, you know, multiple data inputs before a decision is made. But yeah, critical thinking won't be replaced. I don't see that happening. Yeah. So one of my favorite questions to ask is, what is your number one best piece of advice for the CEO listening, saying, how do I take my company beyond seven figures? It goes back to my original point that I made earlier. It's people. Product is important. Let's not just overlook the importance of having the right product. And it's a product that people need. You know, that's extremely important. But in my mind, it always starts and ends with people. One, having the right people in the right roles, doing the right things, doing things the right way, which is, you know, one of the, the pieces of the acronym. But it's the people. You can have the greatest idea, and I've seen this so many times, and it's happened to me personally as well, but the greatest idea, the right product, people need the product, but you don't have the right people on your team to help elevate that vision, uh, it will falter. The greatest or the wealthiest place on earth is the cemetery. That's where a lot of great ideas mm. just died right there. And people that were ingenious in their own selves, but they weren't able to replicate themselves to create a vision that actually grows. And I am just 
it's a marvel to me when I look at leaders that are that are capable of doing that. And I study it. It's my passion. Like, how does a leader take a vision and then create something that grows and grows and grows like a virus to the point that, you know, everyone in the world is on board with this and, you know, it's a functioning company and it's adding impact to the human experience beyond the product itself. That to me is a marvel, but it's the ability to influence people. The product itself is kind of, it's not as important as having the right team to help get that vision out and continue to grow. So I study it. I marvel at it. I look at it in sports. I look at it in business. I look at it in the arts, you know, those leaders that are capable of doing that. Because in my personal opinion, I think we have billions of people on this planet that have ideas that can make billions. Like, I think it's part of the human experience that we all have something to add to the greater good of the environment that we live in, the planet that we live on. And we could take these ideas and grow it. But people don't always have that ability to connect with other people to the point where they see the vision and they run with it. And it's exponential at that point. So I, it, in my mind, it always starts and ends with people. You get the right people. You trust the right people. You let them lead. You let leaders lead. You develop leaders under you. Again, creating those mini-me's. And that's how the results happen. So it starts with the vision itself. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It starts with a vision. How do you create a compelling vision that enrolls the team to stand behind it? So I'll use an example, my own personal example of watching a leader do this. So Ryan McInerney is now is the president and CEO of Visa, but I worked with him at Chase when he was the CEO of the consumer bank. And guy was 32 years old when he took on this role. And so we're all looking at him like 32, who do you know to get this role? But he was so good at allowing you to see him. And so when I was at a conference and Ryan walked up, I was getting a coat and, you know, he stands by me and he's grabbing a coat. We have a conversation like we know each other. But, you know, he's in he was in New York at the time. I was in Southern California. He didn't know me personally. You know, I was one of the district managers at the time for J.P. Morgan. But you felt like you knew that guy. And like he let mm -hmm. you in. And so when he actually started to release his vision, you know, because it wasn't immediate, but when he started to release his vision of what Chase Consumer Bank was going to become, everyone was like, yeah, like I can get behind Ryan. Like, I feel like I know that guy. Like I can trust him. He knows me, although he didn't. But that's the feeling that you got. And so the vision, again, quickly grew. And yes, Chase, you know, escalated and, you know, he's promoted and moves on into Visa, so on and so forth. But I think it's that ability to allow people to know you, see you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And most leaders don't want to show the ugly, but it's that mm. full ability to do that. Awesome. And I think the humbleness to not look at yourself as CEO and everyone else is underneath you, but rather look at it like we are a team and we pull together. I just happen to be captain, but I'm still playing on the same field as you are. Yeah. And I see that as being a very valuable leadership trait. Now, Mac, I know you have a book, My Great Aunt Edna. I'm assuming that's available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and everywhere else. That, everywhere. You know, yeah. Everywhere. And if people want to learn more about you, where do we send them? I'd say the first place is you know my LinkedIn profile. So it's Mac McNeil, LinkedIn, Mac McNeil. I have a lot of information there, but you know, you can send me an email info at migrateonedna.com. I have various newsletters and podcasts on YouTube, Migrate on Edna. So if you YouTube Migrate on Edna, you'll see a lot. There's quite a bit out there where you can find out about me, get in touch with me. Just Google Migrate on Edna. Now, 
I hope you delivered Aunt Edna a signed copy of your book after you wrote it. Well, I would have, but she's passed. She was, oh, I'm she sorry. Was, yeah, she was my, my grandmother's twin. But I did send the book and it was signed to all of her children. And so they were very ecstatic about the fact that, you know, their mother's name is going out around the world and this personification has become a thing, you know, in leadership. So they were all excited about that. And they contributed to the earlier part of the book to tell the, the story of the real great Aunt Edna uh, before I get into the leadership principles. So I, I was able to do that. I'm sure she's proud of you. That's pretty extraordinary. Thank you. So Mac McNeil, my great Aunt Edna, do check it out. It's been a fascinating conversation. And that wraps up today's episode of the Beyond Seven Figures podcast. For more tips, strategies, and information for taking your company beyond seven figures, remember to check us out over at PredictableProfits.com. Again, that's PredictableProfits.com. This is Charles Gaudet with my new friend, Mac McNeil, and I will see you in another episode. Thanks, Charles.